Everybody and welcome to a new episode of Gaming in the Wild, a video games podcast about games from the artistic, creative side of the tracks, from indie to AAA. My name's John, I'm your host. I am recording on Sunday the 29th of October uh, here in Reykjavik, Iceland, where it is a sunny autumn day. I am back in Iceland after a, a long trip that took me to the UK and on holiday to Tokyo, Japan. Um, it's been a while since I sat down in front of the mic. I had to do the intro a few times there. It's funny how fast these things go out of your mind. Uh, but I am back and I have a new podcast for you today. Um, I'm going to be talking a little bit about the ROG Ally, um, the handheld PC gaming device that I finally managed to pick up from the UK um, on my way to Japan during my recent trip. Um, I've had some use out of it. I've had some ups and downs with it. I kind of knew as a my first foray into Windows gaming, that there was going to be a lot to learn, and there has been, uh, but I finally got it up and running, so I've got my thoughts about the ROG Ally to share with you today. Um, and I'm also going to talk a little bit about some of the amazing games stuff that went down during the trip. Obviously, if you're going to Tokyo, Japan, it is a worldwide center for video games culture, and I dipped into a lot of that. I went to Nintendo stores, I went to Akihabara Electric Town, I bought a bunch of games. I came back with seven new games to add to my physical games collection, including Super Mario Brothers Wonder, which came out whilst I was over there. So I went and picked up a copy and I played a little bit whilst I was away. I played a lot on the flight back. I've been uh, picking away at it. I think I'm on the third world now, so it's early impressions of that game. But it seemed kind of fitting, seeing as everywhere I looked out in Tokyo, there were adverts, there were billboards, there were video displays. Uh, the Nintendo store was loaded with Mario Wonder imagery. It seemed to be everywhere. And so it seems like the right game to talk about on this uh, returning episode. So it was a great trip, and I'm really happy to be back. I'm really happy to be talking to you once again. Um, the last couple of episodes that you heard, if you've been listening over the last couple of weeks, were recorded before the trip, so I hope that you enjoyed those. But let's start off by talking about the ROG Ally, or ROG Ally. I've heard people pronounce it as both. This is um, a handheld gaming PC made by Asus. Um, to rival the Steam Deck, I suppose, there seem to be new handheld gaming PCs coming out all of the time. Um, and I've been dying to get my hands on one. Um, I don't have a Windows device. And a lot of the time when there is um, a Steam Next Fest or um, when I listen to other podcasts that cover small indie games or experimental games that come out for Windows only, um, I've been wanting to play them and couldn't. So it's been on my mind for a long time that I would like to get either a gaming PC of some kind or a laptop of some kind, or a handheld of some kind. Um, and I'm very much a console gamer. Um, since the Commodore Amiga back in the 90s, I've only played on consoles, really. Nintendo, PlayStation, Xbox. And so the whole explosion of PC gaming, of building PCs, of um, all of the setting stuff you have to go through, all of the, all of the things that um, are contained within PC gaming has passed me by completely. So I'm coming in pretty fresh. Um, and my initial thought was to get a Steam Deck, um, but for a couple of reasons I didn't get one. Um, for one, uh, Steam locked me out of buying one for some reason. I think it's because I'm in Iceland, um, but I did try changing the location of my account. It didn't work. I've never been able to buy one, and I didn't really want to go secondhand for something 
like that. I think I wanted the the knowledge that it was a fresh out of the box one. Um, so I never took the dive on Steam Deck. And then the ROG Ally came out and it seemed like the first real contender as uh, a rival to the Steam Deck. Um, I was drawn to it for a few different reasons. It has a very, very bright screen. It's not an OLED screen exactly, but it looks as good as the Switch OLED screen um, in my hands. It's a 1080p screen, which is something that I really wanted from the refreshed Switch. Um, that matters to me a lot. I have pretty poor eyesight, and so a nice, bright, crisp screen helps me to not get tired eyes while I'm playing. It's also quite powerful in comparison to the Steam Deck. Um, it has a Ryzen X1 Extreme chip in it, um, which can run even the latest games, as I found out, although you do have to tinker with them a little bit to get them going. And the best of all is that it is Windows-based rather than uh, the Steam Deck's Linux-based Steam UI um, and OS. And that means that it basically acts like a PC. And the big upside of that is that you can play PC Game Pass games natively. I have Game Pass Ultimate, so it means that I can basically download a huge range of Game Pass games and play them natively on a handheld, which just really opens the doors for how useful this device can be. I have a, a Steam library of like 50 games or something, um, but PC Game Pass obviously has um, hundreds of games and a constantly evolving selection, including the latest stuff like Forza Motorsport, um, all of the new games that are coming out all of the time on PC, uh, Jusant, which is about to come out. Um, so it just seemed like the right device for me. I was aware that it being a Windows device meant that it was going to be fiddly and that there was going to be a learning process for me to actually get the best out of it. And that has proved to be the case. Um, but when I first picked this thing up out of the box, I was impressed by how it feels in the hands. It has quite an angular looking design, if you've seen it. It has a white plastic casing, uh, vents on the top, an Xbox style controller layout. Um, and it has a lot of LED lights on it, the way that gamer stuff tends to be. So around each stick, there is a, a programmable um, LED ring that you can turn up or down to cycle colors and that sort of thing. I've tended to play with it switched off um, but it is a nice looking feature if you're into that kind of thing. And it took a while to get it working. Um, there were lots of updates to go through. There was lots of setup. Um, first, you have to sign into everything. You have to sign into your Microsoft account. You have to sign into um, Windows. Um, Windows was already installed on the device, um, but it had to go through quite a lengthy process of updates, including um, the ROG Ally OS called Armory Crate, um, updated graphics drivers, which come in through AMD software that uh, Windows itself had to update. And then you have to download all of the launchers. You have to download an Xbox launcher, the Game Pass Steam launcher, which I think is pretty much the same in practice as the uh, the Steam Deck OS. It's just an app on this rather than the whole thing. Um, and then you actually get to downloading games. And that took a few hours, so I just had it set down. Um, this wasn't helped by the fact that my parents' internet, bless them, it's a little yellow plastic um, antique modem um, that looks like it was one of the first ones made or something. Um, and it was running at 14 megabytes per second down. So every single download took forever. As soon as I got back to Iceland and hooked it up to my internet, I was downloading 40 gigabyte games in 20 minutes or something. I had to leave it overnight to download some of the stuff I wanted to download at my parents' house. So it was a slow and lengthy process. But I was back at my parents' place. It's a nice house in the country and just sitting around and tinkering with that as we talked and 
cooked meals and uh, did all of the things that you do when you're visiting your folks. Um, but it was a lot of palaver to get it set up. I eventually did get it set up and I decided to start with something light, something classic, something I'd played before. Um, and it seemed like a short hike was a perfect game to give this thing a try. It's just a couple of hundred meg to download. Um, I got it downloaded. Um, when I first opened it up, it was for some reason showing uh, key keyboard uh, prompts. I realized that you can use the, the ROG software to switch the control scheme pretty easily actually. So I flicked it over to GamePad and managed to set that as the default. So whenever I open new games now, um, it goes straight to controller prompts. Lots of little things like that with the ROG Ally. You have to, you have to really, really get into the settings. It is not a console-like, it just works experience. Everything kind of doesn't just work and it all takes a little bit of work to get it in order. Um, but once a short hike was open, I was really smitten with the way the screen looked. It looked absolutely beautiful, so crisp, so bright, the colors popping so hard and it ran perfectly. So I played an hour of that. I love that game. Um, and I was really happy with the device pretty much straight away. But of course, the next thing I wanted to try was something a little more demanding. Um, I signed up for Ubisoft's, uh, what do you call it? Like membership program, I forget what it's called. It's like their own little version of Game Pass, just for a couple of months because I wanted to play Assassin's Creed Mirage, but I didn't want to put down money on the table for it. And so it's a cheap way to jump in and try that. Um, it took a while to download um, and it took a while to get it running right. There is a separate Ubisoft launcher, which is another layer of complication that I really don't like. But I went online and Googled the ideal settings for this. It turns out that if you cap the frame rate at 30, you can run it at 1080p. Um, and if you put it on all low settings, it will run pretty smoothly, which I found quite impressive actually, given that that game has literally just come out to be playing it looking fine and feeling great on a handheld um, was excellent. I think the Switch would of course have a, a severely compromised or downgraded version of a game like this, and it looked great. I think on a handheld screen, low PC settings are actually fine. Um, if you do pump up things like shadow detail and the way that light is handled, environmental detail, on a small screen, um, the difference isn't huge actually. So whilst it was like, oh, it's low settings, initial kind of disappointment, I was gonna be playing games on low settings. Um, having looked at the differences, um, I think optimal, getting it performing optimally, getting it running smoothly um, at the cost of some uh, environmental detail and lighting stuff that you won't necessarily notice when you're playing on a handheld um, seems fine. Um, so Assassin's Creed played fine. Um, and after that, I thought, right, I'm going to load this thing up for the rest of the trip. I'm going to put in all of the games that have been on my backlog. I'm going to put on Baldur's Gate 3. I'm going to put on Dave the Diver. I'm going to add Forza Motorsport just to see if it runs. And so I packed it with games. I absolutely filled the memory um, and ran a couple of updates just to make sure it was 100% up to date and then threw it in my bag. Um, and when I first set out to Japan, I was getting a train down to London, first of all, and I thought, this is great. I've got a couple of hours here to try out the ROG Ally. I took it out, I fired it up. I was sitting, the sun was streaming through the carriage. I was on my way on this dream trip and none of the games worked. Um, first of all, I tried to open a couple things that just said the drivers are need updating or there's a driver conflict. I tried out a short hike again and found out that it was running at a frame a second. Same with Dave the Diver. Something had gone terribly wrong. Um, and obviously if you're on on the move, you can't really do a, a settings deep dive. You don't have internet access. And it's a frustrating, sweaty kind of process 
messing around with settings to try and get it working. So I actually didn't take it out of the case for the whole rest of my trip. Um, so this was a real bust. But when I got back to Iceland, I decided to try and solve it. I managed to comb through some Reddit threads. Other people have had the same problem. Um, if you do combination of updates in a certain order, Windows can overwrite the AMD drivers. I think that's what happened to me. I'd done a Windows update. Um, lesson learned, if you have a stable setup, don't necessarily take every single update. Rather, take them when they are essential because they can destabilize um, the environment, basically, and things just won't work anymore. But when I got back, I fixed it. I had to do a, a full reset. I had to factory reset the device. And since then, it's been running perfectly. I actually played the entirety of uh, Jusant, the climbing game that is about to come out on the Ally, and it was just great. It ran smoothly, it looked good, it played well. Um, and I've tried out a couple of other games with it too. I've downloaded a whole bunch of other stuff. So I'm going to call that just a glitch and a learning experience and just move on and try and enjoy this thing for what it is. But as for how this thing actually works... Um, it has a couple of different modes. It has power settings. The battery has been a big um, discussion point on this. It runs down very quickly, but there is um, the ROG Ally Armory Crate software is a launcher that holds all of your games and all of your other launchers. Uh, it looks like a console type interface. So you'll see an Xbox app, Steam app, and then a thumbnail for every game that you have. You can launch them all from there. Uh, you can customize each game's modes, uh, which power profile it runs on, the settings for that game, the controller settings for that game is all customizable. There are three power modes. There is a 10 watts silent mode where the fans just don't run um, and it hardly gets any power. There is a 15 watts performance mode where the fans run a little and then there is a 25 watts turbo mode that you can use when you are plugged in where the fans run pretty hard and it can get quite hot but the heat distribution is pretty good. It's all jetted out the top of the device via the fans. Um, even running at full tilt, the fans aren't crazy. It's not like um, like a, a computer running at full jolt where it's um, distracting sound. They do run, they do jet out a lot of heat. The heat doesn't get to your hands, and so uh, the turbo mode is really good. Interestingly, I tried to run Stray on it the other day. Um, I had it on silent mode, and Stray was juddering like crazy. It was stuttering. It wasn't running well, even on low. Uh, but when I put it up to turbo mode... It just ran at 60 frames seamlessly, perfectly. So it really does make a lot of difference. I think um, when, the, when the device is starved of uh, power, it doesn't run as well. So that was kind of an interesting thing that Stray would or would not run based on how much power was being supplied. Um, the battery life itself is low. If you're running on the higher modes, it's an hour. If you're running on the lower modes, it goes up to 2.5 hours. And so this is something that you're going to be playing in short-ish bursts. I think I'm mostly going to be using it at home, so battery life didn't distract me too much. It's just a nice way to kick back and have a Switch-like experience, play on the sofa, play in bed, and have access to a whole new range of games that you can play in that comfortable, convenient format. Uh, you can also connect it to a monitor. It has a USB-C slot which you can attach a dongle to and connect it to all of your speakers your monitor your controllers all of that stuff it has bluetooth i've tried that with headphones it worked really well um, and the armory crate app is pretty good actually i like that it pulls together all of the different launchers in one place you can also go to desktop which is just a windows 11 desktop so this thing could be used as a home computer basically you know if you get a dock for it or use a dongle you just attach it to a monitor it works like a pc 
Um, I'm not sure if I will get any use out of that, but there is potential there. For example, you could run OBS on this thing um, on turbo mode and have other streaming coming through it. Um, you could use it for other Windows software, although I use Macs for basically everything, so I don't envision using it that way. But it is worth saying that if someone didn't have access to a home computer and got a ROG Ally, not only would it be a handheld Windows device to play Steam, Epic, uh, GOG, Game Pass, all of that stuff, but you could also use it as a PC. Um, I have heard cases of people using an external GPU with it. Uh, ROG has something called an XG Mobile, which contains a, a separate graphics card, um, and that beefs it up to being comparable to um, a low-end um, home gaming PC. So there's lots of different utility for it. Um, I think I'm going to get a lot of use out of this thing, as long as the drivers don't shit the bed again, but at least I know what to do if that does happen. I think I was just kind of unlucky with that first um, that first on-the-road experience, uh, but I am excited about it. It was great to play through Jusant on it. It was great to see Stray running at 60 frames with medium settings on a handheld device. Um, so despite all of the glitches, despite all of the drivers, despite all of the palaver, I think that once you get your head around this thing, um, it's it's really good. It's powerful. The form factor is good. And I think it's just a bit of a learning process. So those are my early impressions and experiences with the ROG Ally. But as for the rest of the trip, um, it turns out that I wouldn't have had a lot of time for gaming anyway. I've had holidays where I did and didn't, you know, you never quite know. Um, I think once I went to, I went over to Manchester to visit a friend there and to see a concert and I took my Switch with me, and I was staying in a nice hotel, and um, by the time I got back at night after a day of exploration and coffee houses and eating, museums, um, I often felt like just lying and playing a couple of hours of Switch in bed on that trip. Um, it turns out Tokyo is a bit of a different proposition. Um, it has a certain sort of manic energy to it all, to the city as a whole, that meant I hardly picked up anything um, electronic. I used the phone constantly for maps, for navigating the tube system and that sort of thing, but I barely picked up my Switch. I didn't even unpack my laptop or iPad. I took both with me. Such huge overkill. Lessons learned for the future. Uh, but after a long flight from London, it was like, I think, 16 hours in total, I managed to get to Tokyo, um, had a meal with a friend and went straight to bed to get over the jet lag. And the next day, the first thing I did was hop on a tube and go to Shibuya. Um, if you know Shibuya, you'll know it's the home of the, the famous Scramble Crossing, where a ton of different pedestrian crossings all trigger at once, and thousands of people all cross different roads simultaneously. It's also like a big, it's a bit like Piccadilly Circus or Times Square in New York City. It's one of those um, neon-lit, billboard-surrounded, uh, glittering light, glass skyscraper centers of urban chaos but it has a bit of a different energy to those places, I think. It's um, it's just more exciting somehow. It's more upbeat somehow. Um, it's just spectacular to see. Um, and it turns out there is a Nintendo store in Shibuya. I found it by accident. I was just walking around the streets with my eyes popped wide open, enjoying the spectacle of Shibuya, and I saw a sign for a Pokemon Center, and I thought, well, I have to go there. Um, it's in a mall on the top floor, so I went up there, and it turned out that I had wandered to the site of Nintendo Store Tokyo. Um, so I went in there. It was really, really fun to go into a Nintendo store. It had stands with huge plastic models of all of the 
stars of Nintendo. There was one for Splatoon with the Inkling Girl in a dramatic pose and loads and loads and loads of Splatoon merch surrounding it. There was one for Animal Crossing. There was one for Zelda. I took a selfie with this this big model of Link and, of course, Mario. Um, and I bought a whole bunch of stuff in there. It was really interesting to see the range of people that were in Nintendo's store. There were lots of Japanese people. There were lots of um, older Japanese people, lots of Japanese families with kids, a whole bunch of tourists buying all kinds of stuff, lots of Americans. Um, and I was there just alone, just trying to navigate the sea of people. Um, and I did basically a kind of a trolley dash. I filled my little basket with stuff. I bought Pikmin stuff. There was a, st a stand for Pikmin. And whilst I haven't finished a Pikmin game ever, I just adore Pikmin. I absolutely love them. I love their little popping eyes and uh, the shape of them and the fact that they are these little plant-like creatures. So I bought a vase, which is like a in a Pikmin shape, but there's a little hole in the top so you can drop in a flower, you can put in some leaves, you can put in little twigs with leaves on them um, and have like a real-life flower sticking at the top of this little yellow Pikmin vase. I absolutely love it. I bought a little Pikmin enamel badge of a, a, a red Pikmin. Um, I bought a whole bunch of Zelda stuff, some uh, Triforce socks, <laughs> absolute peak nerd stuff to be buying here, um, a grey mug with a Master Shield design, a Link to the Past pencil case with a design of Link being flattened by all the Kukos, and like a leather clip thing with a Triforce logo on it. I also picked up some Mario stuff. There was a model of the, the level end flag that I bought. I thought it, that would look nice with my Mario Amiibo. Turns out it's a pen once I opened it when I got back. You can use the flag as a pen. So I was very happy with this massive haul of Nintendo merch. Um, and it was just such a happy place to be. I think wandering around that store made me realize there were so many bright colors and everyone had this sense of excitement. There were big smiles on everyone's faces. Um, you could hear the Mario music from Super Mario World playing. Um, it was just lovely. There were video screens everywhere showing the games, a huge display of games. Uh, Mario Wonder was not yet out. I had planned to come to this store once Mario Wonder was out so I could pick up a copy. And I did end up coming back later and doing that. But it just made me think about how good Nintendo is at creating this sense of innocent, childlike joy, the color and joy of it all. Uh, the Nintendo store uh, really put that into perspective, seeing all of those big models, seeing all of those happy people. It was just a really fun thing to do. Um, the next gaming-related thing I did was a couple of days later. I went to Akihabara. This is an area of town with a few tower blocks um, that are covered in graphics for Sega, for arcade games, for all kinds of anime stuff. There are arcades that are five or six or seven stories tall. There are stores that are like mega stores for games just floors and floors of electronic stuff and gaming stuff, gaming merch, games, consoles, gamer chairs. It's a real massive center for gaming. And so it was high on my list of things to do. Um, Akihabara itself is a bit of a weird place. If you've ever been to somewhere like Camden in London, where there is just a crazy street life going on, um, Akihabara is also home to these um, host and hostess cafes. This is a specifically Japanese concept where you'll go into a coffee house and be waited on and kind of preened over by a host who is in anime cosplay or in um, like Japanese boy band style guys, you know, and um, girls in all different kinds of dresses. And they will just look after all of your needs. You'll take selfies with them, all of that kind of stuff. I didn't engage with any of that, but everywhere you walk in Akibara, you will see people waving flyers all dressed up in 
extreme cosplay, basically. Everywhere you walk, there's people smiling and screaming at you and waving flyers. It's really overwhelming. Um, I bypassed all of that stuff and went to a few stores. Um, One of the first ones that I went to was a tip I got from uh, Blinkoom, who is a host of the IndieQuest and Polykill podcasts and a member of the Gaming in the Wild Discord. And Blink is a big physical game collector. I watch his um, unboxing videos and his game collecting videos where he goes around secondhand stores and then shows what you picked up. He recommended I went to Super Potato. Um, this was a hard store to find, actually. I was walking around the spot for ages with Google Maps open, looking for the entrance. It turns out it's a pretty much unmarked doorway that leads to a lift. You have to go into the lift, and that will take you up to Super Potato. I found some other confused tourists wandering around looking for it, just like I was. Uh, got there in the end. This was an interesting place to visit. It is a gold mine of retro consoles, uh, glass cases full of old game merch and copies of old games, cartridges from that stretch back as far as video games, pretty much. Um, lots of things hooked up to CRT screens with obscure games running for you to look at. Um, there was some Nintendo stuff from the birth of Nintendo, like the first Game & Watches, old Tamagotchi, everything Nintendo has done. It was half like a museum, I would say and half like a sweaty second-hand store, all very tight corridors, people kind of bumping into each other. And there was lots of um, interesting-looking stuff. I didn't really know what I was looking for. I'm not a big physical games aficionado or collector, but I did want to go and check it out. And I think a lot of people there were in the same mindset as me. They just wanted to see it. Um, And it did have the feel of these glass cases full of these rare objects that you would pour over and look at. But also it had these guys buying and selling stuff Um, loads and shelves and shelves and shelves of dog-eared Super Nintendo games from all different regions. Um, And so while it did have that museum feeling, it also had that dusty, slightly dirty uh, posters peeling from the walls, uh, people bumping into each other and bustling around, a second-hand shop feeling, like, you know, a second-hand guitar shop or a second-hand record shop or a charity shop. So it was a really interesting contrast between museum and charity shop vibe. Um, There were also some really interesting anime stores in Akihabara, these labyrinthine stores full of elaborate, large models of mechs, um, shelves and shelves and shelves of anime franchises that I had never heard of, uh, Dragon Ball models, loads of different varieties of Sailor Moon style anime girls, really fun to walk around, just a sensory overload really, Um, hyper niche collector cards, gacha machines, Um, And I did have my eye out for one thing that I wanted to buy. I've had my eye on a a large maquette of 2B from Near Automata. And I did see it around, but it is sold out everywhere. Um, And the ones that I saw were in locked glass cases of sold out stuff. Um, So the most popular stuff of all, basically. It's about a foot tall, I would say. And it tended to be locked in a glass case with a model of Cloud from Final Fantasy VII, Sephiroth, a couple of other really popular characters. And then um, I did find some stores had a near section. And given that there were only probably 20 games that had their own section for merch, the fact that near Automata remains so uh, beloved and collectible was really interesting to me. I picked up a couple of things. I got a little 2B display stand um, and a couple of collector's cards and stuff. Uh, but the kick-ass 2B model that I was in the market for was sold out. And I did also buy some games. In the end, I ended up finding a game that was a bit more tailored to my tastes, I guess. More modern games, more modern systems. It was a shop called Trader. It had shelves and shelves and shelves of every Switch game imaginable. 
um, at amazing cut prices, secondhand games, but they look new. Um, they were about, I think, 20, 25 pounds each. So half or one third of the usual price. And I picked up Bravely Default 2, Splatoon 3, Metroid Prime Remastered, Fire Emblem Engage, Omori, uh, Pikmin 1 and 2 uh, Remastered, and a few extra little bits and pieces of Mario merch, Piranha Plant models, that kind of thing. Um, I went to some claw machines, picked up a Totoro plush, and a little Spirited Away tin. So that was Akihabara. It was really, really, really fun to go there. Um, if you are a gamer, it's like, I don't know what to say really. It's just a, a, a very engaging, sensorily overwhelming place to visit, where just everyone is neck deep in anime and video games culture, and it was a really fun place to go. So that was the, the gaming aspect of my trip. I did play Mario Wonder while I was out there. I did return to the Nintendo store and pick one up. Um, it seemed like a really fun thing to do, you know, to be in Tokyo at the time of a Mario game release. Um, but I am going to do another podcast for my patrons uh, where I will go into the rest of the trip and do a little sort of trip diary, talk about all the temples and shrines, the food, um, the national park, a trip to Osaka on the Shinkansen bullet train, um, a diary of the trip, basically, all of the street life, the art, the culture, and just the general experience of being in Tokyo. So if you would like a more extended version of this diary that goes outside of video game stuff and just talks about Tokyo in general and Japan in general, um, you can become a patron of the show. Um, I'd like to say a big thank you to returning patron Andre, who rejoined while I was away at the $3 tier. And if you would like to join Andre, it's at patreon.com slash gaminginthewild, where you can support this podcast, um, get 10 bonus episodes, get the upcoming Japan Diary episode, uh, join the Discord and a whole bunch of other stuff. So thanks very much to Andre. Thanks very much to all of my patrons. If you would like to join, there is a link in the description. It's patreon.com slash gaminginthewild. And with all of that said, let's move on to the featured game of this episode and talk a little bit about Super Mario Brothers Wonder. <laughs> So Super Mario Bros. Wonder is, of course, the latest in the long-running series. Um, it is the first 2D Mario for quite a while. It's developed and published by Nintendo. And um, I saw an interesting story that four of the five people who initially worked on Super Mario World still work at Nintendo and also worked on this game. Um, Metacritic has it as a 92, so it's done very, very well, um, especially in comparison to the new Super Mario Bros. titles and all of the spin-offs like the... Uh, the Yoshi games and the, the Toad game and all that kind of stuff. Um, How Long to Beat has it at 8.5 through 17 hours, depending on your completionist instincts. So it's quite a lean game, and that's something that I really like, actually. Um, and Nintendo described this one by saying, Jump into the unexpected. The classic Mario gameplay is turned on its head with the addition of Wonder Flowers in Super Mario Bros. Wonder. I mean, I have to say about this one that Wonder is a fresh and imaginative new entry into Nintendo's Mario universe. It boasts fun new power-ups, a lively range of new enemies, and countless fresh gameplay twists. And best of all, every level contains a psychedelic, topsy-turvy section where the game is turned on its head. And this one is the first entry into the 2D Mario series since the new Super Mario Bros., which came out in 2012. Um, and got a deluxe reissue on the Switch. Um, and it's a really, really good one. It's very bold, it's very colorful, 
It feels fresh. Fresh is the word that keeps coming to mind when I'm playing it. And we are all very familiar with um, the 2D Mario games. You know, people have tended to have played a lot of them over the years. I mean, this is the best one for absolutely ages. Um, I think it is, a lot of people have said this, but I think it's the most fun I've had playing a game like this, probably since Super Mario World. Um, and that's because Super Mario World felt like it was um, like a real leap forward for what 2D Mario is. Um, it looked, sounded, and played just perfectly. It had loads of ideas packed into it. Um, and when you have a formula that good, I guess the temptation is to just keep keep going with it. Um, but this is the first game that feels like a breakthrough for 2D Mario. It's just so full of ideas. It is really full of imagination. It's really full of humor. And it has this welcome injection of full-on crazy in it. Um, and some of, the, some of the ideas that are in this game, it's things like, you know, we're all used to Mario getting bigger when he eats a mushroom, um, turning into the Tanuki Soup Mario and having being able to do a tail swish. I guess they occasionally do add new ones, like, you know, um, in Super Mario 3D Land, you could become like a Cat Mario, and in New Super Mario Brothers, you could become Giant Mario. But it was always like one new thing in addition to all of the stuff you already know. And this game is like 50 new things. It's just nuts. Like you can become a purple Mario who can throw bubbles, um, catch enemies in the bubbles. If you pop the bubble, you get a coin. If you don't, then they just fall out and come for you again. There is, of course, the Elephant Mario that you can become now. Elephant Mario is just a big bulky Mario with a big bouncy jump who can uh, flick his trunk. So he has a little attack that he can use, a little bit like the tail flip in the Tanuki suit. Uh, but can also drink water from fountains and use it to spray. And you can have one power-up active and you can have one in reserve. So if you lose your elephant suit by getting hit, you can uh, bring out your reserve power-up and use that. Uh, but some passages of play need you to be in a certain guise to be able to do them. Like you might need to be Bubble Mario or you might need to be Elephant Mario. So as you're going through the levels, if you've lost your power-up and you don't have it, um, you know that you have to come back and try it again later. Um, and that's a fun little twist that certain secrets are only accessible when you're in certain guises. Um, as for the, the story of this game, I mean, we don't really come to Mario for story, but there is one. Uh, Bowser uh, has somehow become a magic floating castle. He's had some kind of uh, mutation. He has become one with the king of the Flower Kingdom's castle, and he is floating around, uh, farting out these dark clouds, causing chaos, dropping piranha plants on people's houses, um, and we have to decastle him, I guess, and defeat him. And the way to do this is to collect all of the wonder seeds and the wonder flowers that are scattered throughout all of the levels um, and just carry out that task and set things back to normal, or at least what passes for normal in uh, Mario Land. Um, the Flower Kingdom is apparently adjacent to the Mushroom Kingdom. It's pretty wildly varied, I would say. Um, it doesn't quite have that set-in-one-place feel that you'll get from Super Mario World or Yoshi's Island, which is set in a very distinctive place. It has very, very varied biomes, and you bounce between them pretty quickly, uh, like from a green, grassy forest up to the clouds, to the desert, to all of these different biomes that you run through. Um, all of the levels are really, really mixed up and jumbled together. You really don't know what you're going to get when you go from the overworld into a level. Um, they all have twists and gimmicks and different enemies different challenges. Um, it's really, really varied, and it feels like it's all been put together to delight you, basically, to give you something unexpected, to give you something new. Um, I think with um, Super Mario Land and World, both of which I really like, and the new Super Mario Brothers game, it didn't really have that level of innovation in them. 
you kind of knew what you were getting into most of the time. There were bits here and there, like you might have to go down a giant slide, you might have to ride on the back of a creature. There were bits, but they didn't blow your mind. They were cool, but it feels like this game really does go the extra mile to genuinely surprise you, uh, to make you do things that you are not expecting. Um, and so whilst old Mario could be considered to be quite a low-key game in that way, or at least the new Super Mario Brothers game, it's almost like a podcast game. You go jumping through the levels, um, you have something else on a side screen maybe. This is a full attention game. I think you really need to focus on this one. Um, and all of that is helped by the, the look and sound of it. Um, it's really, really eye-catching. It's very, very bright and fresh. Uh, the colour palette is eye-popping. Um, it looks and sounds right. Um, and I couldn't put my finger on why, but I watched a Digital Foundry video and John Linneman over at Digital Foundry is a huge Nintendo fan and he made a very good technical observation, which was that the 3D characters um, are animated in a way that makes them more closely resemble the sprites of a 2D Mario game. Um, and I think what he means by that is that in the transition from 2D sprites to 3D, a little bit of the snappiness was lost and a little bit of the character was lost from the 2D classic pixel-based Mario sprites. Um, and he pointed out that that's something to do with holding key frames. So when Mario jumps as a sprite, he puts his arm in the air, he holds that pose, and it gives it a real little powerful thrust when he jumps. Um, the 3D characters from later games, uh, they move a little slower they are constantly animating, and so they have less emphatic key moments in their animations. And you do notice that in Wonder. When Mario jumps, he looks triumphant. He pumps the air, um, and he just looks like he has that character back again. So I thought that was a very um, astute observation, that whilst this is a 3D game um, with 3D graphics, 3D models, it has some of that old 2D sprite feeling. As for the gameplay, um, you kind of know what to expect in Mario games, right? You'll jump, you'll jump on the heads of things, you'll collect their shells and throw them. There are little mini puzzles, you'll go down pipes, you're collecting coins, you're picking up pickups. Um, and this game feels very crisp and good. It feels effortless to move around. Um, I've always liked that Mario has a little bit of momentum that makes his movement, um, whilst it is crisp, it also feels like you're fighting it a little bit, but in a good way. Like it feels like you're not fully in control, like a fast running Mario feels like a careening car in a way. He won't just stop when you stop pushing forward, he'll take a moment, he'll do a little skid. Um, and so you have to be aware of the momentum, which makes it really thrilling to play and slightly slippery, I think, in a way that actually makes the moment to moment gameplay really come to life. Um, you're always picking up speed, but you have to be mindful that you can't just stop and turn on a dime. Uh, you always have to be mindful of slowing down as well. Although I would say that for me personally, um, my only like niggle with the game really is that I think Mario's base run speed um, can feel a little sluggish. It can take him just a little longer than I would prefer to get up and running. Um, and his base run speed is actually quite slow. And that meant that for me, I was using the run button 
to, to zip along more quickly, perhaps more than I would like to. Sometimes I like going through these levels quite methodically, trying not to miss anything. Um, and the slow run speed meant that I was using the quicker, the quicker run just to get through them at a pace that felt right to me. But the big innovation in this game is the Wonder Seeds. Um, there is one or two in each level. You will get a Wonder Seed for completing a level, but there is also a collectible Wonder Seed somewhere in the level. Sometimes you will find it through solving a mini puzzle. Um, sometimes you'll find it through getting to an obscure area. Sometimes it is in a completely locked off secret area, but you do know that it's there. You can see it in the icon for the level in the overworld. And they have a couple of purposes. One is that they act like stars from previous Mario games, like you have to have enough seeds to be able to unlock the way forward. But the more fun aspect of them is that when you collect a Wonder Seed in a level, you will get a mini game where a sort of a sheen goes over the screen, like a prismic flash, and then everything in the level just goes bananas. These are the psychedelic sections that I had talked about. Uh, Mario basically seems to have some kind of full-on trip, like enemies that were coming after you might just start singing and dancing. Um, there might be, for example, if there is a level where buffalo charge at you, then you have to jump out of the way, usually one buffalo at a time, maybe two or three. Um, sometimes you have to manipulate them by making them charge into blocks to smash open the way. Uh, but when you collect the Wonder Seed, suddenly there might be hundreds of buffalo and they might be rainbow colored and just stampeding and you are riding along their backs. Um, if you're in a level with piranha plants, um, they might be trying to kill you. And then when you get the Wonder Seed, suddenly they are doing like a chorus line um, and you are co collaborating with them. I think there was one level where there's people that blow bubbles. You have to avoid the bubbles. But then when you get the Wonder Seed, suddenly they are blowing bubbles and singing and you have to bounce on the bubbles to go up and up and up into the sky. Um, so every time you collect a Wonder Seed, it just flips the game on its head. You get different music, you get different gameplay, um, enemies become friends, up becomes down. Uh, there was one where water went from being on the ground to being in the air. Um, all kinds of crazy stuff happens, and it's just so much fun. So you are guaranteed like a moment of crazy interest and joy and happiness and just... Uh, engaging gameplay as well, completely different gameplay um, in these sections. And every level has one. They aren't repeated that much as far as I can see. So it's like every level has this moment of innovation and surprise and, yep, wonder that just makes this game such a joy to play. Um, you always know that something exciting is around the corner. You really look forward to collecting these wonder seeds um, and they really make the game come to life. And as I said at the start, this is um, this is impressions based on, I think, three or four hours of play so far. Um, I've just been really enjoying this one. It's not a full review. I'm not going to do a full breakdown of the, the highs and lows of it because I'm just not that far into it yet. But I did want to talk about it today. It just felt like the right game to talk about. Um, whilst out in Tokyo, there was so much Mario Wonder presence everywhere and the game was keeping me company throughout the trip. Um, and it was a real pleasure to go and pick one up in the Nintendo store on release day. Um, so I thought I'd just give a few thoughts about it. Um, I will say that I think it's the most imaginative, funny, ingenious Nintendo platformer that I have played for a really long time. Um, I guess it will be in Games of the Year conversations for people, although I wonder if like a retro-style 2D platformer, no matter how good, um, can scale those heights when compared to you know 100-hour open-world immersive experiences with different layers of complexity and so forth. It's an interesting conversation to have, I think. I look forward to hearing people have it. Like, can a perfect retro-style game 
that brings so much uh, entertainment and happiness and interest and clearly has so much packed into it mechanically, visually, musically, and just in terms of personality. Um, can that, that quality, that childlike entertainment and happiness that you get from a perfect Nintendo game compete with something deep and long and more in the modern game tradition, something more of the zeitgeist? Um, it's interesting to put something like Super Mario Brothers Wonder next to a big game like Starfield, next to something like Alan Wake 2. Like, how on earth do you compare these games? Um, I'm really looking forward to games of the year season this year. You know, we've got the Zelda, we've got Starfield, we've got the Cyberpunk uh, DLC, now we've got Mario Wonder. There are so many good games sloshing around, and they're all so different. Um, I feel really happy that Mario Wonder is going to be a part of that conversation. I think it will give rise to some really interesting chats about what we love about games. And I will just round this off by saying, as someone who grew up playing 2D platformers and 3D platformers at the very start of their life, um, this this is just a perfect one. It's just it's just such a good game. It's so polished. It is made with so much love, um, and you really feel that when you're playing it. It is just really, really packed with things to love about it. Um, I'm going to enjoy playing through the rest of it, and when I get to the end of it, as it is a manageable length as well, I may come back and talk about it again. But for now, those are my thoughts on Super Mario Wonder. So there we go, another episode. It's been a while since I made one. I am quite jet-lagged as I'm recording this, but I wanted to get it out on the weekend just to keep up the podcast schedule. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed hearing about the uh, the gaming aspect of that Japan trip, about the, uh, the ROG ally out-of-the-box experience, and about playing a little bit of Super Mario Wonder. Um, I will be back next week with a new episode when I will hopefully be a bit more back to normal and a bit more with it. Um, I'm planning to review Jusant. I played the entire game since I got back uh, during the jet lag, and I had a really good time with it. I'm very excited to talk about Jusant. It is coming out, I think, tomorrow. I'm really recommended if you have Game Pass. It's a climbing game with a really cool climbing mechanic that feels very manual and laborious, but in a good way, like the hiking in Death Stranding. It feels like you are really crossing terrain. Very satisfying game to play. Um, But for now, that's it. Uh, Please do come and find me on social media at Gaming in the Wild. Please do share this podcast with a friend. Drop a rating or a review on it. If you would like to support the podcast monetarily, you can also become a patron at patreon.com slash gaminginthewild for all those bonus episodes and perks. But that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Take care of yourselves and each other. And bye-bye for now.